traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Welcome to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We give voice to those who challenge a prevailing sentiment in global financial markets. This podcast is for informational purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as investment advice. Guests were not compensated for their appearance, nor do they supply payment in order to appear. Individuals on this podcast may hold positions in the securities that are discussed. Listeners are urged to educate themselves and make their own decisions. This podcast episode may have ads and the occasional announcement. To listen without ads or announcements and take advantage of a host of other benefits, consider becoming a premium subscriber. Prices start at $9 per month. Visit the website contrarian.supercast.tech. That's T-E-C-H for more information. Now, here's your host, Mr. Nathaniel E. Baker. This podcast episode was recorded on Monday, April 4th and made available to premium subscribers that same day. Premium subscribers received this episode without any ads or annoying announcements. In addition, premium subscribers also get a daily podcast and briefing that is sent out to them every market day morning by 7 a.m. Eastern time. And this includes a look ahead at the events and economic data releases and earnings and other things that are likely to move markets for the day. It is all discussed with a contrarian perspective, of course, and listeners have found this to be quite useful as they prepared for the trading day. So to take advantage of this, visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com. In addition to the website mentioned at the outset, which is contrarian.supercast, Com. So the price is exactly the same for both. Prices have gone up because inflation is not transitory. It's now $12 a month, $11.99 to be precise. But if you sign up for the year, you get a free month. Anyway, check it out, contrarianpod.substack.com. And now, here is today's episode with Lee Gehring of Gehring and Rosenzweig Associates in New York. Enjoy. We are going to talk about renewable energy. And this is something that has never really been discussed on this podcast because the general consensus is that it is a good idea both for the planet and as an investment. But Lee here has a contrarian viewpoint and he effectively does not believe this narrative, if I'm not mistaken. So Lee, take it away. Talk, talk to me about this a little bit and what your, I guess, issues are with renewable energy. Okay. Well, thank you for having me on. Thanks Daniel. for coming on. You, you bring up a, a, a very interesting point from a contrarian standpoint, uh, if you're a contrarian, because obviously consensus opinion, as you just mentioned, completely believes that renewable power is structured today, and that would primarily be like wind, solar, and EVs, which be associated with those, mm. uh, will somehow solve the dilemma that we are in today. That is, we're producing 
uh, a huge amount of our energy, which also produces a lot of CO2. Well, what, what are the things you should know about our firm, Gehring and Rosenzweig, is that you know, we, we do a huge amount of, of research in various commodity markets and natural resource markets. And obviously the, in, the entire renewable energy field would, would fall under something that we would take an intense interest in. For example, we believe that there was a lot of, of merit to investing in renewable energy, and it's something that we would, we would make very large investments in. However, over time, and we've been following this now very intensely for the last four to five years and doing a lot of research in it, is that our research basically uncovers a lot of characteristics about renewables, which people really have not focused on at all, which we, we believe make renewables will make them ultimately very, very poor investments. Mm. Not only that, but there's going to be sorts of all sorts of unintended consequences that are going to be associated in investing in these in, in renew, renewables, which we could discuss if you'd like later on. But what it means is that you know, it, we're about to, to uh, uh, go down the path that is going to ultimately produce two very, very unsatisfactory uh, conditions. First is that uh, all this investment in CO2, uh, I'm sorry, in renewables will not wind up reducing the amount of CO2 that's being put in the atmosphere today. And what's happening in Europe is a classic example of, of what I'm just talking about. And, and second, it's gonna have ultimately a huge impact on our ability to grow as an economy. In fact, if we make this, if we make a transition from you know, a hydrocarbon-based economy over to a fully renewable-based economy because of the terrible energy efficiency that's associated with renewables is that we're all going to get poorer. Again, Europe is already giving us a great example of that, of that what I'm just saying, in progress. Wow. Okay. That is really something. I want to talk through those points, but first, just to make clear, you say renewables, uh, to clarify, this does not include nuclear, right? Yes. In, in right. fact, nuclear, we could talk about that, that, that if you'd like a little later on. Nuclear is just the opposite of, of, of that. And you could say, why haven't we focused on nuclear as a solution to our problem? But you know, it, it's interesting that you know, the characteristics of nuclear, as far as energy efficiency, are off the chart. For example, you know, uh, all these concepts made very popular or, you know, well-known by, you know, economists like Vaclav Smil, things like that, energy in versus energy out, how much energy you have to put in one side to get energy out the other. Coal, natural gas, and oil are very energy efficient. Mm-hmm. You put one unit of energy in, like to, 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 to uh, drill for the, the natural gas, uh, process it, transport it, uh, burn it. In a, in a big, huge combined cycle plant and produce electricity, one unit in, 30 units of energy out the other side. Renewables, terrible. You know, and this, this is a very controversial thing, and we can talk about how where you draw the boundary on that. But we believe that a fully renewable world has an energy in the energy out ratio of somewhere between one to five to one to 10. Uh, you know, that's basically what, 70% less than hydrocarbons. Nuclear is the other side. One unit of energy in, that is, one unit of energy to mine the uranium, process it, turn it into a gas, into fuel rods, um, and build a massive nucleus, you know, a, a steam generating plant to turn that energy from the split atom into uh, electricity. One unit of in, 100 units of energy out the other side, incredibly efficient. efficient. Okay, so, right. Okay. Well, so maybe we'll get back to that. But for now, um, so we're talking about renewables, solar, wind, geothermal. Uh, what is the problem with solar and wind? Why aren't, don't these work? It has a lot to do with their, their, their energy density 
is very, very poor relative to hydrocarbons. I mean, for example, you look, you know, you look at that gallon of gallon of gasoline that you put into your tank. That is you know, hugely laden with energy. However, trying to collect energy from a wind that doesn't blow or a sun that doesn't shine that you know, gets behind the clouds, the energy density of that is very, very low. So what 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 you have to do is you somehow have to make up for the lack of energy energy density and the resulting intermittency that's associated with both of them. So that means that you have to put in place a huge redundancy in 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 you know, the collection of energy from wind and solar. And ultimately, if you want to make it work, you have to put in battery storage as well. And both building all those windmills, all those solar panels, and then ultimately putting in all that battery storage in itself is incredibly energy intensive. Energy intensity of that uh, is just not appreciated by people. That's Nor the get it set up. Yeah. 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 Interesting. And okay, so, right. And interesting about solar, I was recently in Beacon, New York, and I saw a whole bunch of solar panels there. And I was like, wait a second, this is upstate New York. I mean, it's not upstate technically. I mean, for New Yorkers, it is, but whatever. But so is Westchester County. But uh, I was like, wait a second, why are all these solar panels here? The sun shines like six months a year tops. But so I didn't think that was particularly efficient. But what about in a place like Florida or California, Arizona, the Southwest? It's better, but you're still overcoming the idea that, uh, again, just just the idea that you know, sun doesn't shine for roughly 12 hours a day. It obviously, when it goes behind a cloud, the efficiency of the photovoltaic cells goes down. So you have all these intermittency issues that that in order to make up for it, you need huge amount of either backup from other sources or redundancy in some way. Uh, or storage. And so, yes, you're, you're right. You know, it, it makes absolutely no sense to build solar panels in upstate New York. Uh, I mean, yeah. like why we're doing that, you know, it, you know, this, the, it's known as a snow belt up there. Why? Because the sun never shines. Yeah. And so why are you doing this? It makes absolutely no sense. But even in, even in the desert, it, 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 it's, it's a terribly inefficient way to try to collect energy because of its low energy density and it's high, high energy input needed to make the whole thing, whether it be the copper that goes to the wire to, to collect all the electricity from these panels, the, the, the energy that's na- needed to make the photovoltaic cells themselves, all this type of stuff. Mm-hmm. So, mm. by the way, is Beacon upstate New York? Uh, maybe we should figure it's it out. It's halfway there. It's halfway yeah, there. Yeah. Okay. Right. Like I said, for me, that's upstate. But all right. Now, so what about if you, that now you're talking about a complete switch 100% to renewables, which I didn't even know that that was even feasible, but. But okay, assuming it is or it isn't, what if you don't go the whole hundred percent? What if you keep like 20, 30 percent in you know the the non-renewables? Yeah, and- we, we actually we know what that world looks like today. Um and that's Germany. Remember, Germany has been yeah. at the forefront of investments in renewables, primarily wind and solar, ever since the you know the, the beginning part, the end of the two thousands decades. Mm-hmm. And it it turns out that over that time period. Germany's total electric generating capability, that is the old hydrocarbon-based and nuclear, remember, we'll talk about that in a second because that's a part of their crisis. Um, That generating base plus the new uh, uh, wind farms and solar farms on top of it, they basically doubled their electricity generating capability. Where did the energy crisis first emerge? Germany. And it it, it turns out that, that what you have to do is that in order for this to work, 
in order to keep some sort of grid stability, you have to you have to be maintaining two simultaneous energy generating sources at the same time. And basically, you need to put all the capital cost into that traditional backup baseload thing, uh, coal, natural gas, nuclear, which Germany's now decided to go away from. Mm-hmm. And you have to maintain that, and you have to basically what they call spin it. I mean, you, you've got to keep it going so that when it's needed to be called upon, it can be just it could be off it can go and you're doing this whole massive wind investment in the windmills and solar panels on the other side and so you're paying the capital cost to maintain two two overlapping uh, energy producing systems with all the energy that's required to make all those renewables the windmills and the solar panels and things like that and also run the backup system at the same time so it's just it, it turns out the, it, the inefficiency of what you're doing is is off the charts mm-hmm. and it's no coincidence that the energy crisis first began to show up in europe in germany mm-hmm. and which is why they also have to uh, import russian gas I guess. And, and coal and cold you know and coal. what what are the strange things going to happen i mean in, in Europe, in Germany as well, is we're, you know, we have to wait for the BP statistical survey to come out for all the 2021 energy consumption stats. But the things, we're going to find out that Europe made an all-time new high in coal consumption last year. Wow. They, they basically wiped out a decade of, tra- of trying to reduce carbon emissions. Well, mm-hmm. given the, the terrible energy efficiency that's associated with renewables, I could have told you that's going to happen. Mm-hmm. But wow. no one's listening, so... Okay. Well, we know one thing about governments, which is that they are not always the most efficient bodies of, uh, right. They, they don't do everything perfectly efficiently. And so what do you make of the argument that there is, uh, okay, maybe this isn't the most efficient use of our time and money, but the reality nevertheless is that governments around the world, at least in the developed world, are moving to renewables and at, at, a, at a pretty fast pace. And that with that in, in place, as an investor, it still makes sense to kind of hitch your train to that wagon type of thing. Maybe that's the way around. But to kind of, so the, real, the reality is you have tons of investment going on in this space. And that if you are invested in it, you will profit just based on the momentum that's going on. Do you not buy that? Uh, no. And, and I, I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to be based upon something that Vecla Smell has talked about, which, again, it's, a, it's sort of a very interesting concept that people don't really understand. Never before in the history of the advancement of humankind have you ever been able to institute a new technology with inferior energy economics or in, inferior energy efficiency and displace the old technology. And uh, it just hasn't happened. And I can mm. give you, I, you know, I could give you an example. Here's a, here's a great example. Um, you know, 1955, 90% of all transatlantic uh, passenger traffic took place on boats. Then came a huge technological marvel revolution. It was called the Boeing 707. It basically cut the ener- it basically cut the, the the amount of energy required to transport one person across the Atlantic by by I think it's a huge amount like sixty percent and you did a lot faster six hours instead of three and a half days. Well, what happened by nineteen sixty two? That amount of passenger traffic going across by boat across the Atlantic fell from like ninety ninety five percent down to about ten percent. So that shows you when you introduce a, a new technology with better energy efficiency, what happens? Okay, so let's let's go go forward to the late 1960s. You know, by the mid 1960s, uh, everyone had an idea. Let's let's adopt supersonic um, plane travel, and of course, 
Boeing studied it and said, nope, it doesn't work. I'm going to drop out. The Europeans, uh, Germany and I'm sorry, France and UK decide to go forward with the development of the, of the supersonic plane or the Concorde. Now, the Concorde was a true technological marvel. There's no two ways about it. Prior to the Concorde, the most you could, it, it, people, most a plane could take people above the, above the speed of sound was basically two passengers. And now you produce a jet that could take 100 passengers and 10 crew members across the Atlantic flying supersonic the whole way. And you cut the time in, in half by doing so. A huge technological revolution. However, the energy economics surrounding the, the Concorde, terrible. It, it, it requires almost twice as much fuel per person to fly than the same passenger mile as the, at the, the competing plane at the time was a 747. So what happened to the Concorde? Uh, had great hopes, but literally 20 years later, it disappeared. It moldered, and by the end, it became the plaything of rock stars, Hollywood celebrities, and um, investment bankers. No one else used it, even though you, you, it cut the time flying across the Atlantic by half. That's the classic case where an energy, new technology with much worse energy efficiency can't displace the old technology. And so the idea that we can, that we can displace all these hydrocarbon-based fuels with something with much, much worse energy efficiency can never happen, except for two things. One is the government outlaw the old technologies, or they subsidize tremendously the new, new technologies. Now, we're, we're going down, slowly trying to go down those paths at the same time. But the end result will be that we'll ultimately get a lot, lot poorer. And you, we could talk all about that because that energy efficiency you know, of, of windmills and solars, which is basically best one to ten, is that you're taking you're taking us back to a world that we lived in pre 1650 is when we started to burn coal. Now, does anyone remember what that world was like when you no. everything operated in efficiency of one to ten, which is basically feeding your farm animals, feeding yourself, and burning firewood? Is that for two thousand years there was zero economic growth, zero. And that's, that's what a world is. Plus, we have to get poor to get to that zero economic growth. And for anyone interested in this concept, I, I, I aggressively recommend watching Michael Moore's documentary called Planet of the Humans, where he discusses all this, except he takes the thing, we can't solve our CO2 problem with renewables. So the only way we're going to solve it is we're all going to get a lot poorer. We have to accept that. Now, I don't accept that, but that's his solution. At least he's being honest. Yeah, I suspect most people won't accept that either no now, keep in mind this is just the the west the developed world right you still have china and india who are the biggest polluters in in the world and as far i mean they've made a lot of noise especially china has about moving to renewables and such but they still burn an awful lot of yeah right? and, 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 yeah and, and be very careful about you know be very careful of what china is up to mm. and you know and i don't agree with like for example um thomas friedman in his columns, he says, oh, China is the greatest country in the world if we could only replicate what they're doing. They're not doing, they don't, I, I, you know, I've been to China a lot in my life. And I, 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 I from an outsider, I, I understand a little bit the Chinese psychology and things like that. And, I, and I, I tell you, they do not care about CO2. That is the least of their worries. That They don't care at all. So why are they building all this renewable stuff? Remember, here's what they do care about. China, in the last 15 years has become the world's largest oil importer. And, uh, you know, the U.S., when we were completely energy non-self-sufficient, 
we peaked out importing about nine and a half million barrels of oil a day back in 2004, 2005. And you know, then we swung from being energy uh, insufficient to be energy, um, compl- almost completely energy self-reliant. China's gone the opposite way. They're importing over 9 million barrels of oil a day. They're almost as bigger than we were at our worst. They are incredibly worried. You know, If you listen to all these war strategies, if war were to break out, what would be the first thing the United States would do? They'd shut down oil shipments going through the Malacca Strait and try to starve China's war machine that way. So China is trying desperately to re- reduce somehow their ability, uh, uh, their reliance on oil. And they've gone down the renewal path with huge solar farms and things like that. But you know, I think even we don't know because they don't say it, but maybe even they're getting discouraged. I don't know if you saw the announcement. China is, is boosting their coal production capability in 2022 by 300 million tons. I mean, that's off the charts. I mean, we're down. We're down in the United States. We're only consuming five to six hundred million tons today. We're down from a thousand over uh, over a billion tons, and they're they're going to boost it by three hundred million tons next year. Hmm. China doesn't care about CO two. China doesn't. Renewables are part of their strategy to reduce their oil consumption and their need to to import oil, which they're incredibly worried about getting shut off if they, for example, invade Taiwan. And that hmm. that's probably the only thing that's preventing them from invading Taiwan. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Nuclear aside, are there any other kind of new technologies here for renewables that do maybe have some kind of hope that or, or not? I, I we don't we don't see it. You know, yeah. we, you know, there's you know, one of the things about renewables is that there's this great hope that somehow there's some sort of Moore's law embedded in windmills and you know uh, windmills and of solar panels that is driving down their efficiency on a, you know, an exponential basis that someday are going to push them into the money relative to hydrocarbon-based energy solutions. And you know, we've done a lot of research on this. And you know, it, it's funny, we, we don't believe there's any Moore's law in in um, in windmills and solar panels, but the costs have come down a lot and over the last decade. And you know, why has the cost come down so much? There's two reasons. One is that remember before I said how energy intensive it is to make these things. You know, when you think think about a windmill or a solar panel, like for example, steel and cement, those two things, and also how it applies to, to CO two things. Does anyone have any idea world's steel steel making capability? How much CO two puts to the world as percentage of total CO two? It's almost ten percent, more more than more than total passenger traffic. Uh, car traffic in the world. How much does cement put in as far as CO two? Well, again, it's incredibly energy intensive to make cement. It's almost it's you know, it's it's almost up to ten percent as well. So the thing is, is that you know the energy intensity for steel making, cement making, all that you know, mining all that copper and all these other metals and things like that. And that's what we do. We we invest in mining, so we know all about this. Is that it's so energy intensive that as energy prices have come down, your your total, both your operating and your 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 uh, capital cost to make this stuff has come down, and you combine that with with the fact that interest rates have come down tremendously. That we believe that explains close to eighty percent of the drop in cost for wind and solar renewables over the last decade. As energy prices declined hmm. by eighty to ninety percent, now that energy prices are going back up, and, and you know, and we have this idea that that when you know, if you say to the average person, you say, oh, what, what, is, what is the biggest, or even you know, as a quote-unquote expert, what is the biggest hindrance for the adoption of renewables? 
they say it's low hydrocarbon prices. You know, once hydrocarbon prices begin to rise dramatically, it will push the economics of wind and solar into the money. That is, they will be competitive for the first time against hydrocarbon-based energy sources. It turns out that's not true at all. They're out of the money today. They've gotten a little bit close to being in the money because of incredibly low energy prices. However, energy prices, once they go up, Renewal prices are going to go up. You want you want proof of that already? Look at look at what polysilicon prices have done in China over the last year because of you know the the natural gas which is spilled over into the coal market there. In over the last year, what have polysilicon prices done? They've doubled and tripled because of higher energy prices. So the thing is, is that is that it's there is nothing that we see doing that. There is a transition. I mean, we shouldn't you know. We shouldn't be burning coal at all. We should be burning natural gas. If you burn natural gas, you produce half the amount of CO2 for the amount of electricity that comes out the side versus coal. But, you know, you know, everyone thinks, nitro, you know, in the United States, we see just trying to stamp out natural gas production. You know, the, the people that are terrorizing Exxon, engine number one, is trying to, you know, there's a lot of rumors they're going to try to force Exxon to abandon two massive global LNG, uh, natural gas LNG projects, one in Mozambique right off the the one over the coast of Vietnam. And remind you that Vietnam, both those are very important because that LNG from Mozambique will probably go to India to displace coal. The, the natural gas that's in off that big, huge field in Vietnam is going to try to displace coal within Vietnam. So it, that would be a solution, but we seem hell-bent to, to extinguish that solution on a short-term basis. And then ultimately, nuclear is the, is the solution. Hmm. Where does that leave electric cars? What do you make of the whole electrical vehicle thing? Again, going back to the idea, you can't displace a new technology with an old technology with inferior energy economics. Think of it this way. It's really simple. Nissan Leaf, which is Toyota, uh, it's Nissan's you know, economy EV. You buy that, it's 40 grand. The, that's, that's, with, that's with its smallest battery capability. So it, I think it gets you know, maybe 160 to 220 miles per charge, things like that. If you want to get it up to like 300, it's going to take you um, throw another $10,000 for that. So $40,000. It's competing car, the Nissan Sentra. Nissan Sentra is about the same size. What does the Nissan Sentra cost? 20000 you know, you, you, fill that, you fill that thing up, you can go almost 360 miles on a tank of gas. So no range anxiety, no planning for charging stations, all this type of thing. So what is the person going to do? He's going to buy the $40,000 leaf with all these limitations? Or is he going to buy the Centro with $20,000? He's not, you know. And, and so the thing is, is but how are, we going to, how are we going to make that happen? You're going to try to subsidize the Nissan um, leaf, which, of course, that's that all these new bills coming in the Biden administration. That has a lot to do with it. And, you know, for example, in Norway, they heavily, heavily subsidize EV penetrations, EV purchases there. So they've gotten them up. EVs are up like 70%. But, you know, it doesn't, you know, it's very weird. Uh, Norway also, for example, if you buy an EV, you get, a, you get free passage on tolls, on bridges and ferries and things like that. So there's a huge incentive to use it. So whenever you have, whenever you want to avoid the tax of a bridge toll, you take the EV out and use it. However, if you're going to go up to visit, go into your hoochie, your cabin up in the mountain, you take your internal combustion engine car and drive it up there. So something very interesting has happened in Norway. Even though with a penetrate, a new car sells penetration of almost 80% of EVs, gasoline consumption in Norway has only gone down by 20% over the last decade. So the thing is, you're, everyone's buying an EV for tax purposes and subsidies, but they're not really using them. Hmm. So the thing is, is that the only way you're going to displace the 
the, the, the internal combustion engine with the EV, because of EVs, poor energy efficiencies is through either outlawing the internal combustion engine or subsidizing the EV. Now think of it another way. Back to the Concorde. Who are the people that use the Concorde? Like I said, investment people, bankers, yeah. Yeah, investment bankers, rock stars, and Hollywood celebrities. Doesn't that sound like the people that are buying the Tesla today? <laughs> uh, I know where I live, there's a lot of rich people. Maybe they're all, I don't know what category, mostly investment finance types, but that would be one of the buckets that yeah. would buy it. That's why you see that. Interesting. So, that, yeah, that's interesting. And now what about the actual, uh, the use, the energy use of once you do have the electric vehicle? I mean, because then it's it's not very expensive to charge it, right? And yeah. Well, you know? the, the, the biggest, the, the, there's some, one of the biggest problems is that getting back to this, this energy, energy, energy out. Remember, one of the, 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 the most important and expensive element in an electric car is the battery. And the making of batteries is incredible incredibly energy intensive. And so it, it's funny, we've, we've done this study and it's been replicated by Jeffries. If for example, that EV only lasts like a decade, it turns out that the, the amount of energy put in to make that EV versus the EV that's put into an internal combustion engine is about the same. So it, you know, there is no, it, and if you equate energy input with CO2 output, there's no difference between making the EV and driving it versus having them just driving an internal combustion engine. If the EV lasts longer than that, and we, you know, it's interesting, we'll have to see, we don't have enough data to determine that, you know, as you know, with your iPhone, after a couple of years, what happens, hmm. the battery begins to degrade rapidly, you have to go and buy a new one. We're, we don't know, everyone's talking about the performance of the Tesla battery on a long-term basis. We don't really know what it is. Hmm. So, the, but, but it's, it's, because there's so much energy intensity that goes into the making that battery that it, it's hard to get any, any, any sort of CO2 savings or cost savings for you as the consumer out the other side, especially if you only last 10 to 12 years. Hmm. So Je Jeff, that's, that, that our study has been replicated by Jeffries. Mm -hmm. Jeffries has a really good uh, study that basically concurs with what, what, what our, our, our uh, research framework has told us. Hmm. That's weird because I had I thought that the iPhone battery depletion was due to a conspiracy by Apple that like you buy a new one, but I guess there is. But natural. but but, but, I, but I, it is natural. But I, I agree hmm. with you because I had my battery did the same thing, and I, no, I I'm think sure it was, yeah. I think it was that software upgrade. But but I, I I'm on, I, let's see I'm on um I switched over from Blackberries to iPhones probably about six years ago, and I'm on my third iPhone. Uh, yeah, a year late, and I'm on my third iPhone already. So, right. Well, that's actually not bad. Uh, yeah. Every two years, that's about what I, what I, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, okay. But, but aren't, aren't all the automakers kind of phasing out the internal combustion engines or, or? I think what they do is that they're, they're hedging their bets and they're very, very worried. Remember I said, it's it, nothing prevents a, a business, a, an administration like the Biden administration from waking up one day and saying, I'm outlawing the internal combustion engine. And the, the thing is, or I'm going to subsidize, which is, it's in one of those transport build back better America, whatever, uh, a huge subsidy to EV buyers if it comes from a unionized shop or whatever, which cutting poor Mr. Musk out. But the funny thing is, is that, you know, between if they could subsidize it to, to actually bring it, bring the EV into, into the proverbial, into the money. So I think they're hedging their bets. But X outlawing or subsidies. It's going to come down to the majority of people. Do I buy the Sentra or do I buy the Leaf? I tell you what I would do. 
I'd buy the Sentra. I'd never buy the Leaf. And uh, because there's range anxiety, there's you know, the Financial Times and the New York Times have written humorous articles about people, reporters. One time, these two reporters, Los Angeles, decided to rent, a, I think it was a, a, a Tesla, and drive it to Las Vegas. It's a hilarious story about their range anxiety and how, and you know, the fact is that between the, the cost of electricity and the fact that, you remember, you, you it takes a long time to recharge one of these things. So you're going to several, several hours. At the time, it, it was it cost, it was 50% more time to go to Las Vegas and it cost the same. Another great article in the Financial Times about two reporters trying to go from Silicon Valley to Reno. Now, they have a full-blown crisis because they 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 do, can't make Reno and they realize they're not going to make it because they're going uphill. They didn't put that into their huh. calculations. And they had to go all the way back someplace and get it recharged or whatever. Wow. So it took them twice the time to get there. So, wow. you know, it, so are you going to buy the Sentra or are you going to buy the Leaf? Hmm. I, I, I buy the Sentra. Yeah. All right. Let, let's take a quick break here. Lee Gurry, very fascinating conversation here. Um, I want to come back and get into the investment case here and what you think are better uses of investors' money than renewables. But let's first take a quick break. If you are a premium subscriber, you will not get the break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Everybody else, if you want to be a premium subscriber, become a premium subscriber, you can visit the website contrarianpod.substack.com and sign up. We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Contrarian Investor Podcast, where we give voice to those who challenge a prevailing narrative in global financial markets. Consider becoming a premium subscriber. For $9 a month or less, premium subscribers receive a number of benefits. Podcasts are posted immediately after they are recorded. Transcripts are made available within 24 hours. Premium subscribers get direct access to the host and access to private channels on our Discord server. They also get generous discounts to our virtual conferences and other services. And, of course, there are no ads or interruptions. Visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information. That's contrarian.supercast.tech. Welcome back, everybody, here with Lee Goering. And Lee, this is the section of the program where we ask our guests to tell us a little bit more about himself or herself and how he or she came to this station in his or her career. So, yeah, take us away. How did you get into this? And um, that, that how did you find yourself now? Uh, at uh, Obviously, it's your firm, so you started it, but how long ago was that? Yeah, tell us about it. Okay. First, Nathaniel, step back. I've, I've been managing money now in the, in the commodity natural resource area now almost 35 years exclusively. Um, how did I get involved in it? It's kind of interesting. Uh, you know, my, both my parents uh, met at Exxon. They both used to work at Exxon. And they, they actually met at Exxon, Exxon's old Bayway refinery, which is now owned by ConocoPhillips, right uh, west of New York City, uh, the New York, the, the New Jersey Turnpike runs basically right through the middle of it. Uh, they met there. Uh, they met there in World War II, and so it, you know, say I have a oil and gas is in my background. It, it, it literally is uh, both literally and figuratively. Mm. Um, you know, growing up, uh, my parents used to talk all the time uh, at the dinner table about the oil world. Uh, this is a true story. My father used to lecture my brother back in the mid-1960s, he would say, sons, we're burning a lot of hydrocarbons. We're putting a lot of CO2 atmosphere, CO2 in the atmosphere. Someday this may be a problem. We might really? warm up the atmosphere. Oh, yeah. Yep. And uh, so, you know, uh, 
oil and gas and all commodities were, were tabletop conversations growing up. You know, a classic example, my father, you know, one of his bought his, he started his career right before the war working for uh, uh, Chevron in their big El Segundo refinery. He, he, he'd become an aviation fuel expert at that point, obviously very, very important in World War II. Um, and his boss there was uh, eventually went off to ahead one of the big Saudi exploration and production groups uh, that found the great Saudi oil fields post-World War II. Mm. So my father used to tell me all about that and things. So it, it, I became fascinated with the area. And I was lucky enough by the late 1980s that uh, I was able to assume the portfolio managership of you know, uh, uh, two natural resource funds uh, at the Prudential Insurance Company. And I ran those from 2000 as lead portfolio manager from 1991 all the way to 2005, um, had a tremendously good good track record during that time period 2005 I, I i got a phone call from richard chilton who runs chilton investment company here in new york and he, mm-hmm. he said you would you be willing to come to chilton investment company and start a a, a, a natural resource fund in the hedge fund format uh for a firm and i said yes and um you know that was became wildly successful at one point i think we had over five billion dollars of assets there we raised all that from zero and uh, we became the biggest natural resource hedge fund in the world for a number of years. Um, you know, 2015, um, I decided to retire from Chilton um, with a, one of my associates from Chilton, Adam Rosenzweig. We decided to go out and start Gehring and Rosenzweig Associate, a firm that, as I mentioned before, is dedicated to investing, uh, researching and investing in global commodity markets. We're an SEC-registered firm. We run the Gehring and Rosenzweig Resources Fund, an open-ended mutual fund that is dedicated to investing in everything I'm talking about today. And um, uh, we manage money also for uh, institutional clients as Mm. well. That's a perfect lead-in to what you think are good areas to invest in from an energy standpoint now, like where your portfolio is allocated and what you see as, I guess, uh, growth or opportunistic uh, or valuable places now sick of me yet become a premium subscriber and avoid all ads or interruptions other benefits as well visit contrarian.supercast.tech for more information okay and one of the things too nathaniel i want to impress upon um your listeners out there is that we we don't we try not to tell you what's happened today or what happened yesterday we actually one of our our goals at Gehring and Rosenzweig is to do research and, and recognize trends and get them into print long before they they actually become headlines in the front page of the Wall Street Journal and the the, uh, the Financial Times and, and, and journal financial journals like that. Good example of this: summer of 2020, oil prices in April had gone to minus 37. Unbelievable. We wrote a big, it was the, our cover essay in our quarterly letter, and I recommend everyone out there, if you're curious about the world of natural resources, you can download our quarterly letters from our website. Everything I'm talking about today is in those letters. Uh, and we we wrote a big essay, lead essay, called On the Verge of an Energy Crisis. And we outlined all the factors that are causing the energy crisis today. And we said it's only a matter of time before it happens, and it's going to happen faster and come out of the blue, um, and that's exactly what has happened. So the thing is, is that we're in the world, we're in the middle of a full-blown global energy crisis. Uh, it is, I mean, we're releasing, doing some very drastic things, including releasing 
you know, basically almost 25% out of the strategic petroleum reserve over the next six months. Um, and the, 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 uh, the question that you might have in your mind is, is this, how long is this crisis going to go? And is it investable? And I would say, yes, it's been pulled forward by the whole, everything that's been happening in the Ukraine. It really pulled it forward by six months, but all the underlying factors, you know, you know, completely unrecognized strength in global oil and natural gas demand, um, the problems that are existing in supply, and written extensively about both these subjects over the last five to six years, that how they're going to come home to roost. They've come home to roost now. So I still really like investments in the energy area. I, just, I, I you know, If we woke up one day and Putin uh, had been overthrown or he stepped down and the new leader said, oh, we want peace with the West. We're removing all our forces and oil prices pull back $20 uh, a barrel. I, I would say buy as much energy as you can, because none of the none of the factors that I that we believe is driving this market today is going to go away. So I still really like energy here. More specifically, I think that you know we were huge uranium bulls. We believe that uranium is part of this of the uh, the solution. Uh, to the world uh, energy crisis, as well as being a solution to the climate change crisis. You know, one of the things about uranium is that not only is it incredibly energy efficient, uh, so you know it could it could really fund huge amounts of new sources of growth going forward in you know, the coming decades, but it also produces zero CO two. It's the perfect solution to our problem. And we're beginning to recognize that. Now, one of the things, the underlying fundamentals of the uranium market are incredibly bullish for uranium prices. We think that uranium prices, you know, they bottomed at $18 a pound, you know, basically two years ago. And we've been writing about it since then. We, we turned bullish right at the bottom, which is what we like to do. And we've been recommending uranium investments ever since. I believe that uranium prices are going much, much higher. So I recommend people to have investments in uranium today. Stocks have moved quite a bit, but they're going much, much higher. We like copper. You know, We believe that copper is the quintessential green metal. And you combine that with the fact that India, China is still consuming copper tremendously because it needs to get from $10,000 per capita GDP to $15,000 per capita GDP if, unless they make a huge new investment copper in their their installed base they can't do that india has just is where china was back in 2000 uh 2000 so india is going to go through a huge um, cycle and growth in copper consumption and copper supply is relative going to be very very hard to grow through this decade for a variety of reasons if you're curious about that check out our letters there's a couple big essays um, on the problems embedded in, in growing copper supply and finally, we, we love agriculture. Now, again, to what we do, we don't want to tell you what happened today. Uh, a year and a half ago, we wrote a big essay called The Coming Global Agricultural Crisis. And it was based upon observations that because the world is getting richer, and we, we've actually measured how, that, how rich the world is getting, that, that, that richness, that increase in per capita GDP in emerging markets is going to overlay, overload global grain markets with demand. Which has. And it was only a matter of time before either a supply disruption or some other black swan event threw the global agricultural markets into crisis. We're here now. Now, it's also been exacerbated by the coming fertilizer crisis. And we love fertilizers. We've always been a big believer that a bull market in grains winds up in a bull market in fertilizer. And however, you know, remember, fertilizer production is incredibly energy intensive. 
I mean, basically, uh, you know, the nitrogen complex, which is one of the three great nutrients needed to improve crop yields, is pure energy. You're taking natural gas or gas generated from coal and turning it into, into nitrogen. And so we're developing a nitrogen shortage today because of high energy prices and the fact that both China and Russia have embargoed. They're both among the uh, China's the largest nitrogen exporter. Mm. They've embargoed them because they're using it all internally. And, you know, the other crisis in, in potash, um, potash, Russia, Belarus produce 40% of global potash. So that is, uh, is, has the, the potential to suffering a, a, a supply disruption. So the thing is, that everything is lined up for a global agriculture crisis. We're in one right now. I mean, you punch out Bloomberg, every other in the, in the, the agricultural pages, crisis, crisis, crisis. That's all you see. And I'm afraid it's going to get worse. And uh, one of the reasons is that, you know, back to the fertilizers, you know, the three great fertilizer groups, nitrogen, um, phosphate and potash. Phosphate and potash don't have to be applied every year. It stays in the soil. It doesn't leach out. It's not as critical. Nitrogen is critical. Nitrogen evaporates out. It has to be applied every year. In the U.S., we apply it twice a year. And so, um, you know, and there's already talk about farmers cutting back nitrogen applications because of its lack of availability. So we could have a really, we could have a, an immediate impact on, on corn, wheat yields in 2022 growing season. So, again, we love agriculture. We love the fertilizer stocks. And um, we, we, we like those areas as well. Don't farmers already produce too much in, in the way of grains and stuff? Um, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well Nathaniel, it's very interesting. You know, if you go between like 1980 to 2000, global grain consumption grew about 1.3% per year, which is very much in line with, with population growth. However, since 2000 to today, that trend line has shifted up tremendously. Global grain consumption since then is up like 60 to 70% since then. The trend line growth now is about 23 to 2.4%. And why is that? Well, as you as an economy gets richer, you, you know, when you're $2,000 of per capita GDP, which is poor, a poor economy, you, you most of your food consumption comes in the form of rice and, and bread through and wheat. And so, however, as you get richer, you decide to increase your animal protein consumption. It's something that's embedded in human nature. So as, as places like China and huge amounts of that emerging market, market world has become richer, their, their animal protein consumption has ratcheted up hugely. Again, consult our last letter. There's a big essay with a lot of really neat graphs that show that, that intensity of grain consumption as co- economies get richer. And it's, it's not going away. It's something that's going to be with us all this decade. So, so we ratcheted up grain consumption. And over the last 15 years, we've had been very, very lucky uh, with great global growing conditions, which has helped crop yields. You know, it's also aided by new genetics and by increased fertilizer applications. But you know, can something happen, a black swan event to disrupt that? In, you know, Russia's invasion of the Ukraine, maybe that's it. Because remember, we were all growing up. Ukraine was was called the world's wheat breadbasket, which it is. So are things going to get disrupted, supply disrupted from there? Maybe, who knows? But we love agriculture and we, we believe the world is in the, you know, if you haven't accepted the world is in an agricultural crisis, you will in the next couple of years. And there's huge investment opportunity in mm-hmm. that. What's the best way to play that? Um, can I ask about individual? I guess I can ask. But... Uh, yeah, we, we, you know, I, I don't like to talk about it too much, but mm-hmm. think of it this way. I'm not, and uh, whether... 
you know, we do own the stock, a stock called Mosaic. It's the world's largest, one of the world's largest uh, phosphate producers, one of the world's largest potash producers, and they have a lot of positive operational things happening in their potash business. Um, I'm referring to the, the, the fixing of their ester hazy mine up in Saskatchewan, which had huge water flood problems. And it, many years ago, it got so bad, they were threatening to close it. That's all been fixed or the process of being fixed. And the stock basically trades at, at basically five times this year's earnings. It's run a lot, but it's only five times earnings. And uh, I should point in the last bull market uh, cycle, which fertilizer cycle, which peaked in 2007, 2008, at the peak of earnings, uh, Mosaic didn't trade at five times earnings. It traded at 25 times earnings, peak earnings. So there's tremendous up upside in these stocks. So, right. Do, what about as far as like procuring more uh, supply of, of these resources, like, you know, miners and such? Is that, is that something that you, got, that you look at at all? Yeah. In, in fact, it, it, you know, it's interesting. Um, as far as, you know, it, the, the demand for all these commodities, there's another factor that's going to start influencing these markets uh, that no one has any of their models because we're all too old to remember the 1970s, you know, which remember that was a highly inflationary period. And it was a, it was a period where people were really gripped by inflationary psychology. That is, they, they firmly believe that, you know, what you bought today was going to be more expensive if you waited six months. So what'd you do? You bought it, you bought more today. And we're, we're going to go through a, a period where, where companies um, are going to, and individuals are going to wind up buying a little bit more of everything, commodities, because of the, the inflationary psychology by today, because it's be more expensive tomorrow. So that's going to create its, its own demand, new source of demand, which no one has in its in, in, in anyone models. And in fact, you know, it's interesting um, just to show you how things have changed. Back in the 70s, companies said, yeah, I'd like to have a lot more inventory. I'd like to have a lot more commodities on my balance sheet. Why? Because I, I, I was actually able to book inventory profit. I bought something mm -hmm. at one. Six months later, I, I went into my manufacturing process and I sold it the equivalent of $1.50. I made 50 cents of inventory profit. It got so bad, people don't remember this, we had to change the accounting system. We were, you know, so much profit was coming from inventories that we had to change the accounting system over from uh, LIFO to, to FIFO hmm. to, to, to basically, so the earnings represented today's operating earnings and took out inventory profit. So all these things could happen. It's going to really it, you know, demand inflationary psychology. It is coming, is going to really boost the, the demand for commodities. Now, the other thing is like agriculture, this is going to be a real problem, is it? Once people begin to really worry, do we have an agricultural crisis? People are going to, people and countries are going to start to hoard grain, which is going to tighten the supply tremendously. So that's something to really, really watch about. Watch, and you know, Russia could play the weak card. You know, Russia and and Ukraine, I believe, supply close to forty percent of the world's right. seaborne wheat. So the thing is, is that is that could they withhold that, sell it all to China, right. um, keep it out of the seaborne market? Huh. Something to watch. Hmm. The first thing I thought about when we talked about more consumption was a place like Costco, <laughs> but man, that's probably not where you're going with that. But, but well, I mean, but but you know, you know, one of the reasons you know, back going back to the '70s, one of the reasons why the, the gasoline crisis got so bad is that everyone kept their tank full. Hmm. You know, what do you do now? You know, I suspect the tank in my car is probably 65% empty most of the time. And the funny thing is, is that back then, you know. All every car 
because you were worried that you couldn't get the supply, you kept it 100% full. That itself brought forth a huge amount of, of gasoline demand, which kept prices incredibly high and created a shortage. So, you know, it, 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 it can spill to the retail level. Interesting. Wow. Yeah. Very cool. All right. Uh, Lee Garing, thank you so much for joining the Contrarian Pod Investor Podcast today. Very interesting conversation. Uh, you mentioned your website. Maybe in closing, you can just tell listeners how they can find out more about you, more about the firm. Yeah. I'll put this in the show notes as well. All our, all our research, everything that I've talked about today, just about everything, is on our, our, our website, uh, in, contained in our investment letters. We put out a very, very extensive quarterly letter. It's in the public domain. You can download it. Also, there's a lot of podcasts, webcasts that, that we've done. Uh, I, I recommend everyone look on our website for this for this uh, web podcast webcast we did called The History of Energy. It's, it's put everything I said into a historical perspective. I recommend everyone watch it. You'll understand you know, how pernicious uh, and the unintended consequences of investments in renewable energies will be because we put them in a historical context. Mm. So there's all sorts of interesting stuff on our website for investors. You know, we, we, like I said, we, we run the Gehring and Rosenzweig um, uh, open-ended mutual fund. Um, it's, it's, you know, all you need is a $3,000 minimum investment and um, it should be available from your brokers. So you can invest with us if you'd like. Mm. So that's the, that's our pitch for our firm. So cool. Very nice. Are you on the social media at all? Uh, sometimes, sometimes yeah. I don't, yeah, my, my partner, Adam is, I, I, I'm a, I'm a technological Luddite, so it's hard for you to do. So cool. All right. Maybe I'll, I'll link to Adam in the show notes as well. Very good. Thank you, Lee, for coming on. Thank you all for watching, listening, and we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Thank you for listening to the Contrarian Investor Podcast. We hope you enjoyed this episode. To subscribe to this podcast, simply open your favorite podcast software and search for Contrarian Investor. Follow us on social media by searching for Contrarian Investor on Twitter and Instagram. Send us your thoughts on feedback at contrarianpod.com. We look forward to speaking to you again next time.